What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is The Ringer's latest narrative podcast? You can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then, cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Whether it's taking all your little ones to their sporting events or everybody getting together and taking a ride to the beach, the all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped for any adventure. With features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or standard third row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Ringer NBA show. I'm Kevin O'Connor and here today, as always, is Jade Kyle. Man, what's going on on Father's Day today, Kyle? <laughs> Um, you know, it was I, I took my Father's Day yesterday because I knew we'd be watching a lot of hoops today. <laughs> so I sat back, drank a bunch of beer. But today, you know, I sat through the misery of playoff basketball. It was just horrible <laughs> agony. agony. Um, my goodness, what a day. Like incredible games. This this one that just finished. Who boy. I mean, it's going to launch a bazillion conversations. Oh, yeah, a bazillion. Is, well, let's get into that. Happy Father's Day to you, Kyle, and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Well, we did see two NBA games today, a game one and a game seven. Let's start in the Eastern Conference. The Hawks, they beat the Sixers on the road in Philly, 103 to 96 on a night that Trey Young was five for 23. Five for 23. Kevin Herter, Red Velvet, 27 points. Set of the 18. Butcher's Boy. That's oh, his he, name. He just backed down Seth Curry, got wherever he wanted on the floor. Ben Simmons was a zero. And the moment, there's two moments, Kyle, that summed up the night for me. Third quarter, Matisse Thibel steals the ball, gets a dunk on the end of the, end of the floor. Trey yeah. Young gets the inbound, pushes it the other way, lobbed to John Collins, and then the Hawks scored a couple more times towards the end of the third quarter. And then, of course, in the fourth quarter, the game, the play everybody's talking about, Ben Simmons inside the paint has an opportunity for a wide open layup, wide open, could have easily gotten to his right hand. And he passes it to Matisse Thibel, covered, just defender draped over him on a cut, gets fouled, 
And like, what are we doing here, Ben Simmons? It, like those two plays for me, Atlanta's tough and, and Ben Simmons and the Sixers just rattled the whole game. Think about what you just said. He passed up a, a, a dunk, which should have been a dunk, which he did in the past game too. He passed up a dunk to kick it out to Thibel. I just think that like sometimes there's a moment in whether it be an administration or it be where you can just tell that that was the that was the moment like uh, that broke broke the the camel's back. I don't know. I was watching some Disney documentary recently, and uh, they they had some photo shoot thing where a lion attacked this guy, and they're like, "That was the end. that's a really weird obscure example." I'm just saying that that play was just sort of um, so symbolic, and you could just feel the uh, the trade machine fingers. You could hear it from space. Just people launching as they into should that. as they should. I mean, like Sixers fans and I over the years have always had like a weird relationship because I've always been the person to say Ben Simmons shoots with the wrong hand. There's fit issues here, blah, 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 this and that. And now it's at the point where it's like Sixers fans dislike him and hate him way more than, than me, the more than I ever have. <laughs> I mean, it's just gotten to the point where it's almost kind of sad. It's almost kind of sad, isn't it, Kyle? It is said. I, I, I mean, I think that like real, real disdain is a product of like true familiarity. So I think that that is why. Mm, that uh, makes sense. Y- you know, I just think that's why Sixers fans have this just entrenched, uh, just. They've seen it so many times. They've seen it. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll be frank earlier in the year, I did a video on MB and I got into some just kind of uh, bickering matches with some people where I brought the fit thing up. I think it's a product, too, of they're just so tired of people talking about it. Because I think maybe deep down they were just hoping it would go away. I'm not trying to, like, diagnose anybody psychologically here. But, like, you know, I think they got the vibe that it was going away, that maybe we'd finally fix this thing, that they were going forward. But you get into the playoffs, and it's like you've got this offense that's centered around. Now, the, the inherent idea, the simple idea of centering your offense around a center that can score, like Embiid, and who can make reads. He's not like a high-level manipulative playmaker like Jokic, but he's a guy that can score, get to the line, create easy shots, create imbalance. But it's just the fit. It's And they've tried a few different things. You know, they tried it with Jimmy. It didn't quite work. They tried, And then they're trying it with Tobias. It's reached a point where it's just like, man, you got to have more creators on the floor that, that, can, that can facilitate and dictate pace. I thought that Herter said something really telling in his post-game interview just now he said that we felt good because we had a closer we have a good closer and I was just like you know in the NFL whoever has a the best quarterback in the two-minute drill feels confident about their chances who is Philly's quarterback in the last three or four minutes who who is it I just I mean, I, th- I mean it, it is Embiid and he had eight turnovers tonight to three assists he's very sloppy with the ball at times in this game and it was odd in the second half of that game it felt like he didn't come anywhere close to the rim. He was almost, I don't, there was one point he hit a free throw line jumper. I was waiting for him to drive and he didn't like, he didn't go close to the rim. He didn't attack. I wonder if that was partially him feeling pain or, or some fatigue or whatever it is. But when Ben Simmons, your supposed point guard, maybe, maybe it is fair that Joel Embiid was listed as forward and center on all NBA ballots, because Simmons is essentially the center sometimes. The way he just hangs around in the dunker spot, just stands there doing nothing, oftentimes not even screening, and they don't run pick and roll with him. Oftentimes they can't. They don't necessarily have the ball handler do it. It's not just the fit between Embiid and Simmons. It's the fit 
with him, with Simmons and this entire roster with the lack of a downhill pick and roll ball handler. That's why when, you know, we talk about trade machine ideas for Ben Simmons, people go to the Damian Lillard, Portland, you know, trade CJ McCollum for him because then you think about, oh, Simmons is a short roller. But here's the thing, regardless of where Simmons plays, regardless of Philly keeping him or not, this guy, what, what annoys me the most, Kyle, is the lack of development on the offensive end of the floor. Give this guy all the credit in the world for getting to the level he has on the defensive end of the floor. Like Seriously, he deserves the praise for his defensive development since he was lazy and was a zero at LSU on that end. But on offense, he still has nothing on the post besides that little dribble into his right hook shot. He's got no feel around the rim with his left hand. He always goes right. He's predictable. Defenders know what's coming. He has nothing from mid-range, nothing from three. Stubbornness, unwilling to change shooting hands when John Townsend, ex-Sixers shooting coach, had him practice doing that, <laughs> did not continue doing it. J.J. Redick, former Sixers teammate, has suggested to him, has said it on his podcast, that he should switch shooting hands. I'm Oof. not saying that's a solve here. My point is, is that Ben Simmons is a really good player. Oh, yeah. And he's shown that he can get better at things that he was previously bad at, like defense. Let's take the extra steps here and improve. Invest in improving on the post. Invest in improving your jump shot. It's just, it just disappoints me, Kyle, because I, I can see this working. It could work. It's just he hasn't gotten better in the ways that he had to for it to work. And that has made Embiid be in a situation where so much of the creation is on him, where you see him doing some of the stuff that he has gotten better at. Embiid is a better passer than he was in the past, mm -hmm. but he's still not one of those guys who's picking apart a defense. He's just not that, never going to be that. You're putting it on Tobias Harris to be your guy taking 24 shots. You're putting it on Seth Curry, a guy you got for Josh Richardson last year. You're putting it on Jake Milton, George Hill. <laughs> like that, that's what annoys me here. Like Ben Simmons is capable of doing so much more, dude. And that's where it comes from for me when I criticize this guy. He's capable of more. And yeah. I'm, I don't think it's going to happen in Philly anymore because it's reached a breaking point here where how can you run it back again? Like, is there any logic to them running it back, Kyle, besides nobody making an offer worth accepting? Is there any other reason to run it that's back at this point? That's the problem now is that they've waited another year where it's like the leverage is going to be is going to take a ding now where people are oh, just yeah. like, we know you don't. We know you want to get rid of it. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of we know you don't have any use for this thing anymore. I, I was just thinking like Simmons. Simmons has been a lot like like somebody being in a relationship with someone who like does a bunch of just kind of things that are just cool enough. But all your, you know, they're like spontaneous. They like a lot of the same things you like. You're like, wow, I can't believe I found this person. That's awesome. But then they keep doing all these other things. And you're, all your friends are like, I don't know, dude. And your family's like, I don't, this feels weird, doesn't it? And you just stick it out for longer than you should. Not saying that uh, anyway. But I just think <laughs> it's a weird... <laughs> No, it makes it's, it's it's a good analogy and it makes everybody has a friend they've seen that. And sometimes for yourself you've seen that too, you know, in your own lives. And you can see it with Ben Simmons, yeah. And I, I just think that like and Philly's defensive identity was so enticing that I think that they could bully most people. And I think the early returns, one of the things that I said was I worried that short term sort of satisfaction from like maybe we got this right could potentially handcuff their long term flexibility. And I think you know, they waited around to see if this would work. I think one of the big, just talking about, I think the other, the flip side of this, there are going to be just myriad Sixers conversations going forward. Like, uh, I, we're going to talk about that. I think the other side of it is give the Hawks credit, man. I mean, I know that people, 
people are acting like the Hawks were this just like ragtag team that's not any good. It's like, <laughs> nah, man. They they have a lot of vers- offensive versatility. They smartly attacked the weak points in Philly's lineups. Um, I mean, what a luxury to have Danilo Gallinari come in in your second unit and just go to work like that. That's a starter-level guy who, he's hampered. I mean, he it speaks to how good offensively Gallo is that he could still string together offense like that at that level in a playoff game without... I mean, he was on the verge of chaos anytime he dribbled the ball. <laughs> like, well, uh, potential I, disaster. I mean, to your point, Kyle, watching this game, oh, the whole series, it was the whole series, I found myself saying to myself, Atlanta's got more talent. Multiple times throughout the series, Atlanta has more talent when Doc would be running out these Dwight Howard, Ben Simmons front courts, you know, with Maxi and Milton in the backcourt, whereas the Hawks would have Gallinari coming off the bench. You'd have Lou Williams, a former sixth man of the year, even though he's not the same guy anymore. Mix and match with Trey out there sometimes, or Kevin Herter, Bogdanovich, a lot of bucket getters, guys you can rely on to create shots or hit shots off the catch. So many more interchangeable pieces that fit together. Mm-hmm. It just felt like with Philly, it was a bunch of guys who didn't fit well together. And oftentimes the lineups like the Simmons Howard front court, like what are we doing then in a game seven for? But that's, that's beside the point with Atlanta, though, to your point, Kyle, this team does deserve a heck of a lot of credit. They've been one of the best teams in basketball ever since Nate McMillan got hired. And Bogdanovich got healthy too. That helped yeah, a lot. Yeah, for too. sure. No Which doubt is about hurt it. right now. But absolutely. Yeah. And for them, the next round against the Milwaukee Bucks, that'll make a big difference. But ultimately, for Atlanta here, I mean, bravo to them. They turned their season around, and in many ways, I mentioned that play earlier: the thigh ball, steal, and then dunk, and then Atlanta fires right back. Trey Young's always thinking next play, next play, next play. Finds John Collins. That summed up this Hawks team for me. It really felt like a microcosm of who they are. Horrible start to the season. They kept coming back, become a top five seed in the Eastern Conference. And this series against the Sixers, people count them out, understandably so. They keep punching back. They're a tough team. They're a team that has the ability to fight back through adversity. They are a team that I I think their mental makeup here is one of the reasons why they're in the Eastern Conference Finals. The way they beat the Knicks, Trey Young on the road, bowing to Knicks fans, doing this in a Game 7 in Philadelphia. This entire team has a bunch of guys who have no fear, and they play together. And I don't know, I come away highly impressed from them. And do you have any hope for them to beat the Bucs, though? It's a little bit of a different game. Um, I was going to say one, I want to tack... I don't want to answer the Bucks question. I wanted to tack one more thing on the Sixers thing. If you just go down line by line and look at their players, like the like the DNA of these players, Corkmaz, lean scoring, Harris, lean scoring, Embiid, lean scoring, Seth Curry, lean scoring, Simmons could be a playmaker, but he has these other flaws that kind of negate some of his spacing. Maxi, lean scoring, George Hill, lean scoring, Dwight Howard, useless. Mat- Matisse Thibel <laughs> fouled somebody on the head on a three oh, within God. the last minute of the game. Shake Milton, I wish he'd played more. But, I mean, hmm. Paul Reed, probably going to be an all-star someday. Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, no, going forward against Milwaukee, uh, it's a tougher, it's going to be a tougher thing because, I mean, Milwaukee's going to challenge as stunted and stilted as they've been <laughs> offensively in these playoffs. I think we're probably going to talk a little bit about this. I do think that they started to figure some things out down the stretch of that Brooklyn game that worked for them. Um, they're going to be a little bit more of a challenge, I think, in terms of the spacing. Now, 
the Hawks are going to be an interesting challenge too. I, I, I think, um, I just want to say, called it on the herder thing. I mean, he ended up being, when you can put a score creator as like your third option like that, uh, that's, that's a tough team to deal with. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I still feel like the Bucks uh, can hurt them in ways that Philly couldn't. I would still lean Bucks. Um, I don't know what they're going to do about like Giannis is not a shy transit. Like the way Simmons was able to attack Atlanta and transition and create, uh, Giannis is not going to shy away from that in the same way. There, there's not going to be any bashfulness around the rim like that. Uh, what no do you think? Him. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'll, I'll pick the Bucks in this series. We'll have a lot more time over the course of this week to break that down. Game one won't be until Wednesday night. But, you know, the fact this Atlanta team is even here, the fact we're even having this conversation about the Atlanta Hawks and the Eastern Conference Finals after <laughs> the fact that it's happening this early in Trey's career, the fact that it's happening the way the season started, the fact that it's happening without DeAndre Hunter or Cam Reddish. Oh, yeah. I mean, like these like Hunter's a really good player on both ends of the floor. Reddish, granted, he's had some struggles on offense. is a really good young wing defender like this Hawks team isn't close to full strength without those guys. And for Hawks fans. You got to be like so stoked, man. Like even if you lose, it doesn't matter if you get swept by the Bucks. Like it, it doesn't matter. Like these yeah. are the good times if you're a Hawks fan. No Just kidding. savor it because next couple of years, this is what Philly did a couple of years ago when they burst on the scene a little bit before uh, ahead of schedule. So I would just say that the Hawks fans, I know a lot of them are like, what is, what is this? What is this joy feeling we're feeling? No, I mean like, and it doesn't mean you'll be back. It doesn't exactly. mean you'll win a championship. Like there's still ways you get to build up. Uh, and I, I do think though, for the Hawks, this is a team that will only get better over the years to come. Cause I still believe in Hunter. I still believe in Radish and the position this team is in. Trey young is a player the way in which he performs he seems like somebody that guys would want to play with. That's what I'm curious about. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it, that it, up. It, it, do you feel that way? I'm not totally less, sure. Less His teammates seem to like him, though. Right I now, mean, yes, I, for sure. Yeah, I don't have any personal direct ex- exposure to him. I have no clue. I mean, I just know that, like, in college, like we've talked about a million times, the thing that soured me on him is it didn't seem like his teammates enjoyed playing yeah. with him. He didn't elevate that team at all. Winning, winning changes a lot. Winning changes yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He he just maybe his he, maybe he just doesn't suffer fools well on the offensive end and just didn't want to. But uh, and maybe I don't know. I was I was interested down the stretch of that game. They started to run some of those like clay stuff where Herter was like faking the screen and slipping it. And Herter had scored so many points at that point. Oh, Herter was so good, man. That they had to start respecting him. And it was just, uh, Philly just looked like they didn't know what to do. But I mean, there's a space, it seems like, for like, they seem like they need like one more piece. I don't know exactly what that would be. I'd like to sit down and, and think about that. Maybe do a yeah, video uh, about it uh, at some yeah, point. But. That's a good idea. Um, so we saw uh, Bucks nets on Saturday night. Bucks obviously won that. Uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about that game in depth. But Kyle, any thoughts from that game that come to mind? I mean, ultimately, I think uh, it got to the point where Durant was carrying such a load. I, it kind of felt like he maybe got tired in overtime a little bit. It finally hit him. But I, I was noticing that uh, I think that the Bucks we've given them a lot of credit. We've given them a lot of crap, not credit for uh, for the the struggles that they've had on the offensive end, kind of falling into into line. Uh, just a couple bullet points for me. I thought Brooke Lopez. I was dogging him earlier in the series. I thought he had a fantastic game. He made several great out of area plays, protecting the rim. He made one left-handed block. I think it was on. That was nasty. uh, I think it was on uh, KD. I think he blocked it with his offhand. It was a pretty tough block. 
Um, he was good. For me, the key of that game was in regulation. I think they won it. They ran like uh, in like the last four minutes. I had it written down. They ran like four right side pick and rolls with Giannis and, and Drew, uh, just attacking Harden. I think one time uh, Giannis got all the way to the rim on a pocket pass, and the other time they tried to anticipate that. Drew popped to the corner and hit a shot. Um, and then, yeah, and then they faked it and went to Middleton and did another pick and roll. I think they deserve credit for that. There wasn't it wasn't no a big scoring overtime. You know, I know Lopez had the big brain fart at the end of regulation. Um, it's <laughs> Made wild up with the block though, didn't he? Yeah, it's it's wild that uh, are they going to end up in a situation where they they have all this frustration with with Bud, and then they get to the finals and like, do you fire? Has that ever I mean, happened before? We'll we'll see how the season plays out. They could very well win the whole thing. Yeah, we've seen we we've seen crazier things play out in the history of sports, and I do think like we talked about this yesterday in prepping for the pod. But I mean, if the Nets don't have injuries here, this is a completely different result. Nets are likely in the Eastern Conference Finals, and with the amount of guys they miss, James Harden playing apparently with a grade two hamstring injury, uh, Kyrie Irving missing time, it'd be completely different. And for Brooklyn and for for Nets fans, this team should be back pending good health. Uh, however, I do think, you know, there clearly were some missing pieces here. The need for a big, this is why they got LaMarcus Aldridge. It's unfortunate he had to retire. This is why they chased Andre Drummond. Um, they need to find somebody better than DeAndre Jordan moving forward. And with Joe Harris, I do think it's worth noting here. He shot 25% from three games, three versus seven. And that's his worst five game, three point shooting stretch since Brooklyn's playoffs in 2019 in a first round series against the Sixers when he made just 19 threes. So his last time shooting this bad was in the playoffs. I mean, he's been 45% for the regular season for many years now. Playoffs, he's had two major stinker series. Might just be, you know, low sample size, but he's never been close to this bad during the regular season over a five game stretch. I believe his low was like 29, 30%. Um, so for Joe Harris here, he missed a, a wide open oh, one in the fourth he, quarter. It was painful to watch that one, dude. And of course for the Nets, they were without Spencer Dinwiddie towards ACL early in the year, either having him back or having a guy who can handle that secondary creation could be very, very valuable for this Nets team. I think those are the keys for them moving forward. Is there anything that stands out to you um, with building the Nets up so they're back in the situation again to go to an Easter Conference Finals and maybe actually get there? It speaks to what every single team in the NBA needs, that we're talking about a team that has KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. We're like, man, it could be nice if they had one more facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah. just tells you where bad. It's like, oh, world's, you know, I wish we just had... In, right? yeah, yeah, I wish we had just yeah. one more. Um, yeah. I, I just, I'm starting to wonder <laughs> if uh, Joe Harris is is going to get Harry Bede from this team. Like, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if, yeah. if, you know, going cold like that just leaves a taste in your mouth. I just I know. can imagine the text threads between K K KD, Kyrie, and Harden. I don't know. Nash seems like the kind of guy that would hold hold Pat, but I guess ultimately it's it's going to be Sean Marks' decision uh, on that one. But And, and uh, Dinwiddie has a player option, right? I yes. think this summer? And, okay. and, and it was reported he will likely decline that. And he'll have a hell of a lot of teams after him. It wouldn't surprise me if we see him or the Nets try to weasel their way to a, uh, a sign and trade situation, potentially. Because um, some teams that had interest with him in the past, such as the Lakers, uh, did uh, would have to 
do a sign and trade. So we'll see what happens there. Dinwiddie's not clutch, is he, though? I don't think he's a clutch guy, is he? I don't or think is he's he? a clutch guy. I don't believe okay. so. Not that but, it matters, right? Yeah. Well, um, there are six clutch guys on the Lakers, so <laughs> Let, let's move on to the Western Conference and talk about the game one we saw between the Clippers and the Suns. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, Kyle, let's move on to the Western Conference. We had a game one for the West Conference Finals. The Suns beat the Clippers 120 to 114. We saw a huge first half for DeAndre Ayton, who just continues to check every box, every series of the playoffs. He had 14 points on seven of eight shooting, finished with 20 points in the game. Another outstanding game by Devin Booker and Paul George, too. They went at it back and forth in that third quarter. That was a heck of a lot of fun. George had 34 points on 10 of 26 from the field with five assists to one turnover. Reggie Jackson also came up big for the Clippers with 24 points on 19 shots, but too many turnovers. But the nickname you came up with last week, Kyle, Big Game Book. Big Game Book. He, he was the star of the night. 40 points, 13 rebounds, 11 assists, only two turnovers. Where, Good defense, 44 minutes on a night. Phoenix needed Yeah, they needed it. it. No Chris Paul, and they got it, Kyle. I thought, I mean, not only was this arguably Booker's best game of his career, it was one of the best game, best and most complete performances we've seen in all of this postseason, too. Where do you? I was going to ask you where you think this ranks in the echelon of his of his uh, career of his big games because he's. It's interesting that we even have to ask that question. It speaks to how well he's been playing, how fast he's been maturing. I mean, Phoenix Phoenix needed this today. We t- we were texting before the game, and I said they needed a big game from Aiton, which they did. Um, Aiton definitely expanded and played really really well within his role defensively. He was good, but uh, sticking on Booker though, I mean. I think the thing that jumped out was just that, you know, the Clippers tried to throw, they threw a lot of different looks at him. They tried to, they had these different stints where they had like Beverly and Rondo at the same time and they were trying to speed him up in like the three quarter court, um, which I was, I was thinking at the time, I was like, well, that's really where you miss CP3. But Booker, the phenomenal part about this is that Booker basically was thrown into several sequences where he needed to make reads and not. I, I was just very impressed with how he didn't overhunt his own offense. And we saw some of that from the Lakers. I think today it was an even more complete performance. And uh, he was just he was just picking them apart. I, I thought it was it was a really, really Im- impressive poise performance from him. Uh, poise. That's the word I felt watching him. They threw some traps at him. There was some pressure on Booker to try to get the ball out of his hands. And especially in the second half, it just felt like he was dribbling with an ease and a confidence, sometimes into traffic intentionally to draw defenders. He's weaponizing his scoring to create opportunities for his teammates. And sometimes, like we talked, he had 11 assists. He also had multiple hockey assists in the game as well, where he kicked it out and then they flipped it to another teammate. And, you know, I thought for Booker, 
you know, you mentioned his great performances already in this postseason. He had the 47-point game in the closeout against the Lakers. He had 34 points, 11 rebounds in the closeout game against the Nuggets. He's had some sensational performances throughout his career during the regular season before he ever made the playoffs. But this was no doubt his most complete, you know, the playmaking ability that we saw from him. As you said, he was so poised. He had the clutch rebounds as well. He had, he pulled down some big boards towards the end of that game, especially the last one. Um, and never mind the points, him and Paul George going at it in that third quarter. That was a hell of a lot of fun to watch, dude. I just loved it. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, PG, um, I want to ask you before, both of these guys kind of have questions uh, looming over them that are, I mean, they're slightly different. You know, I, I feel like Paul George has always had a lot of talent. We've always seen that there with him, but it's always been a question of, he's had these knocks against him. And they've always been sort of circumstantial, like, and I want to talk about that in a second, but with Booker specifically, what do you think it is that, you know, he keeps doing this and I guess it's going to get harder and harder to make arguments against him going forward if he keeps doing this and he keeps, you know, putting together complete games like this. What do you think it is that is causing people to penalize Booker in the top 20-ish elite player tier of the NBA? What do you, what do you think that is? Not watching games. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what else to say, honestly, Kyle. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good. And speaking of not watching games, you know that we we talked <laughs> really, a lot I really about. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I left him speechless. That rarely happens. Yeah. I personally think it's been a case of people doubting his pure um, facilitator sort of balance with his scoring. We know he can get his buckets and things like that. I, but today he answered a lot of those questions. Specifically, man, this is kind of like killing me a little bit with the broader basketball conversation. I feel like this went on for probably, especially me living in a college basketball state, I heard this shit all the time and I got really sick of it, was this this idea that like NBA players don't play defense. Um, I feel like that finally kind of choked out over time, like it went away. Um, we're to the point where like the mid-range thing has been so caricaturized when people are talking about analytics, they create these sort of straw man you know, images of analytics. They're like, well, they say not to take that shot. It's like, and then on the broadcast, they were ranting about like how, what a, what a novel idea it is to have a mid-range shooter. We're past that. Like I've, if you're, if you're still making that argument, like you're just not paying attention because this has been going on. I think you even made a vid. Didn't you make a video about this a year ago about the value of mid-range shooters in, in, playoff basketball I, think like I, be, I believe so i mean so much has been done videos podcasts uh i know seth partnow did a great piece a couple of years ago that always comes into mind it popped into my head when mark jackson and uh, jeff van gundy were talking about on the broadcast wow it's so great mid-range it still has value you gotta have a mid-range you know score to have success in the playoffs it's like yeah no kidding you do you always have had to that hasn't changed and i know in that seth partnow article years back he wrote he a book the, too by the way that's he, coming he, out book about coming that. out later this year too and the players that aren't taking mid-range shots now are like those players that used to take the spot out baseline jumper, the PJ Browns <laughs> of the world. Yeah. You know, your role players like 10 years ago, Jay Crowder would have been taking pull-up twos instead of instead of taking sidestep threes. Those that's the role players that aren't taking mid-range anymore. They're attacking all the way to the basket and taking threes. The star level players, Devin Booker, Damian Lillard, Chris Paul, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and so on and so on and so on and so forth. Like all of those guys are still taking a heck of a lot of mid range shots, especially in the playoffs. Like that room has remained unchanged in the league. It's just everybody else because it's a higher value shot. Yeah. And I think specifically as it, you know, Paul George, like you said, is another one of these guys who 
Paul George, when he's going, I've said this on a bunch of different shows, he's just an unbelievable basketball player. Like, so smooth. Like, he's just crazy fluid with his mm-hmm. dribble. He's one of the most, the cross-section of like fluidity, his, his like, his athleticism for his size is just there are there just aren't many dudes like that. Uh and it's the the Clippers, I think this is gonna be a fantastic series because the they're both teams that can go small, but what really struck me while I was watching was that like, you know, we get away from this idea of like, well, size, size isn't necessarily the thing that dictates, you know, the way the way things are gonna pan out and, or like the way schematically teams are gonna come at each other. These are two teams that can go small, and yet the Clippers throughout that game were hunting size-driven mismatches. I was, it would just struck me how interesting that was that both of these teams can go five out. But the Clippers, it's going to be a great series because the Clippers are such a great shooting team that they can put these insane clusters together where they just hit shots. And, and then you also can pepper in these stretches where Paul George just goes to work, and uh, Phoenix has their work cut out for them. You know, like McHale played really well, and they are faster than Utah in like dribble containment and things like that. But are you sure this is going to be a great series, Kyle? Do you do you think the Suns are going to take it quick? I'm asking you. Are you sure? Because and the reason why I ask that is because Kawhi Leonard, in all likelihood, is not going to come back anytime soon. Sounds like there's a real chance Chris Paul could yeah. for Game Two. And we saw the you mentioned it earlier how the Clippers tried so many different defenses against Devin Booker. They pressured him. They blitzed him. They trapped him. They threw different guys at him in those situations. Zubat started the second half because Marcus Morris was out and Zubats was playing drop pick and roll defense that opened up more of the Suns playbook. They ran more pick and roll. They picked him apart that way. Like they tried boogie in the first half and then they brought Aiton back and Aiton then then contained boogie. Rondo had a rough game, you know, when he was out there, did not play great defense. So for the Clippers, like no Kawhi Leonard coming back as far as we know right now. Are you sure it's going to be a great series? I feel pretty good about it. I mean, if CP3 comes back, I think that the Suns could take this in like six. They could take it in five or six potentially. Uh, I, I just what, think that what if he Cl- doesn't? I think this could go seven. I mean, I I just think that the matchups balance each other but I mean I think that the Suns looked like maybe I'll contradict myself a little bit here I I think that the Suns looked like the more cohesive defensive team throughout this game Um, they look faster than the Clippers what do you think about that I mean yeah that's why I'm not convinced like what is the argument for the Clippers from this game that this will go you know Clippers maybe steal one game two that it does go deeper with Chris Paul's return looming, because I don't feel the same level of confidence for them after this game, just because of all the reasons stated in favor of Phoenix. We've done this two series in a row against the Clippers, but they also had Kawhi Leonard at that time, Kyle. That's true. I just think that, uh, I don't know, I feel like the Clippers have so much offensive kind of variability to them, specifically with like George could even, you know, I I just think their shot making uh, is hard to predict like I just think it's a thing that makes uh it's an even equalizer thing when it comes to style because you saw that like the Suns I thought outplayed them in a lot of ways and I mean they got big performances today so too if you think like maybe that evens out kind of regresses to the mean but Booker's mean in the playoffs has been really high what really struck me was you know um they the Suns have whenever they were trying to bring pressure and blitz Booker uh and ever book uh Booker did a good job of hitting like the short roll or hitting those uh, hockey assist passes. Uh, the Clippers were trying to anticipate that hockey assist a few different times throughout this game, I noticed, uh, and going to the spot where they thought it was going to get swung to. 
if Phoenix does a good job um, anticipating that themselves and just throwing simple pass fakes, it happened like five or six different times. And Bridges Bridges caught the ball off of off of a trap against Booker, and he like pass faked it to the corner, and he went all the way to the rim for a dunk. Uh, Aiton caught one in a similar spot around the right elbow, and he pass faked to the wing, and then went to the corner for a wide open three. If they if they make at least good to very good decisions on that front throughout this series, it's going to be really difficult for the Clippers to defend the Suns, in my opinion. So you might end up being right on that front. Did, yeah. did you feel at all the Clippers were a bit fatigued in this game? They played, I think, 14 games in 29 days. I believe that's the number. Well, where, where specifically did you feel like you were noticing fatigue? It just seemed like a team that was fatigued down the stretch of that game. Just my own eyeballs. I think there's certain moments, a little bit of slow and defensive rotations, hands on knees towards the end of the game. And it, I mean, like the Phoenix Suns had a heck of a lot of time off. Uh, the Clippers did not. So maybe that disparity made it clearer. Um, and maybe next game that won't be as as obvious. But it, it just, it, it's tough scheduling here for the Clippers, considering they just cut past Utah on Friday night. Then they have a game one on Sunday. It's like, and it's an afternoon game, too. It's such a quick turnaround for them. Yeah, and that could be a factor in this series too. Like in your favor, it could be really in in in, in, well, and yeah, in Phoenix's uh, favor, I think it could play for them. Uh, A couple notes that I wanted to hit too is just I talked about this a little bit with Chris the other night, but the Reggie Jackson. It's funny too that like those OKC like 2014, 15, 16 teams, like uh, Reggie Jackson's out here. Like just when he shoots anymore, dude, I think it's in. I don't know. Like it's to the point when he misses, I'm surprised. He's improved his shot over 40 percent with the Clippers. I threw out the stat on the mismatch last week. He's number one in the NBA in isolation scoring efficiency, <laughs> according to the second spectrum of players with a minimum of 100 opportunities. It's, it's pretty crazy. It is, dude. Is. It's to the point where, yeah, my respect level for him when I see uh, when I see him come in uh, is really high. I mean, and on the flip side of that, I mean, campaign is another guy that uh, I thought his downhill pressure in this game I think Mark Jackson pointed it out about like if Aiton just dives with his hands up in this game and they have those guys in the game, uh, he's going to get easy buckets because he's able to stay on the floor in ways that uh, Gobert ne- didn't necessarily. You know, you wanted to, I guess I'll, I'll tee you up for that. Do you want to, what do you think about the Gobert? No, let's Aiton talk thing? about Aiton first. Aiton okay. specifically, um, every, every step of the way here, he's just checking every box. First round against the Lakers. Second round, now third round here in a situation in which we just saw the Clippers expose Rudy Gobert. And that was the big question entering the season, the series. And I thought eight in that first half, the energy that he brought on both ends of the floor, running the floor, sealing guys off underneath the rim, the footwork he has in those situations to finish. Um, I looked up earlier on second spectrum after one dribble this season, Aiton shoots 56% after one dribble. Gobert mm-hmm. was only 43%. After one dribble, smaller sample size for Rudy because he's never in those situations. But it shows the difference when Aiton is put into situations where he needs to, you know, do something with the ball. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And Aiton on the defensive end of the floor was strong. Uh, they put him in times in pick and roll. Struggled a little bit at first because what do you? What can you do when Paul George is taking pull up jumpers? Uh, but they adjusted, have him playing more up to the screen. That worked out better. So I, I thought Aiton complete performance. And like you just said with Rudy Gobert. That was, you know, for Phoenix, they got to watch that series and probably show DeAndre in a bunch of film, do this, don't do this, look for this in this scenario. In a way, I'm sure that was probably a growing experience for Aiden to have the opportunity to watch that. And, you know, Gobert took so much heat 
after that loss to the Clippers, and rightfully so. I th- I think the stuff about Gobert's defense is a bit unfair. It is unfair. Yeah. Because Gobert, Gobert is the system. And the Clippers, with the way they play small ball, you remove what they do on defense, and their lack of perimeter defense on Utah was exposed. So Gobert has to come in and help, leading to open corner three shooters. Utah did not make any adjustments to the way they were rotating on defense, kind of baffling. I talked to a number of coaches and execs over the weekend that are like, what's Quinn Snyder doing here? There was literally no adjustments to the way they were playing defense. But to me, the main issue with Rudy Gobert wasn't anything about his defense. It's not about his lateral movement. It's not about his ability to move north and south. It's the fact that he can't even beat Luke Kennard on the post. It's the fact he can't beat a smaller guy when he has him sealed underneath the rim. And the fact that he couldn't at all force the Clippers to go big. DeAndre Ayton in this lone performance here with some design cuts, they had some design plays of getting going towards the rim with some freelancing situations when he just attacked, he read the play, or he just ran the floor in transition to get underneath the rim. Ayton showed the ability to defeat those smaller players. And he did it on the boards too. Gobert doesn't have that. That's the big difference there. And to me, Gobert's limitations on offense were most apparent because if Gobert had been able to punish the Clippers for being small, then the Jazz could have been in their normal defense if Zubats were out there more often, if Cousins were out there more often. He just couldn't do that. Uh, wh- where do you stand on, on the Gobert versus Clippers um, thing that we saw? Because he did get a heck of a lot of heat. Or are you on my side here where like, maybe it's more about his offense than his defense? I don't think anyone, it's not a binary, like it's not a this or that kind of a thing for me. Because it's a lot of different factors. I mean, yeah, he, he does get challenged whenever he's having to rope. What One of their weaknesses, which was dribble penetration, exposed his weakness. So those things kind of work together in tandem. And I think that, you know, the, the Suns are just a different animal in the way that the roster is built, you know, so you know, just quicker. And we, we talked about that. Uh, and they, they have a few more like defensive tools that are longer and quicker and they take some things away that the jazz weren't able to. So no, I don't think it's a hundred percent fair. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that if Gobert can't punish them offensive on the other end, offensively, uh, that, and force them to put different types of guys on the floor to deal with him. Um, you know, long story short, I think you hit it on the head. I just think that, for eight and again, you know, they won. And the the exciting thing for me is the adaptability and what the adaptability for him going forward. Like, he's just a sponge. You talked about them showing the the film to him uh, in between series. His uh, He's just playing really low mistake basketball. Oh, I mean, yeah. and, and if you think about where he was, I think back to when I first saw him and some of the things that I thought, I was just like, this guy's lazy, he doesn't run. But really, it's like it teaches you a little bit about what you're looking for when you're watching prospects because they're misleading uh, things when you're watching guys, specifically defensively. If they don't have the info in their mind, unless they're one of these just raw, fly-around athletes that's going to make plays, it can lead you to think that they're not ready defensively. And Mm. Aiton has been really impressive to me on that front. Um, And I still, like I've said this a hundred times, the next step for me is he catches it in a busted play. He catches it where he's not taking one dribble, you know, a design cut type thing. And he has a couple different moves in his bag. You know, we were knocking Giannis. That's the step for me. Like, Aiton has shown me that, like, levels two, one and two of his pyramid are good. When you start adding, talking about adding the caps on there, like, this guy's a force, can go get his own offense. 
And you're talking about an all-star. You're talking about a guy that's that is a really terrific player. Absolutely. And I think the the interesting thing for Phoenix here is they didn't have to do it in this game. They tried to keep Aiton on the back line of defense. Mm-hmm. Um but throughout the season, they had Aiton switch on some pick and rolls and showed some perimeter ability as well. And for him, that I think the Clippers, maybe more than any other team in this postseason, have shown the power and value of versatility in lineups and schemes that you can use on defense. We've seen them play drop coverage. We've seen them play you know, switching. We've seen them blitz and trap. They've pressured. They've done everything you can possibly do on the defensive end of the floor. They've had mixed success doing all of it, but with different lineups and different, personnel, uh, and different um, personnel on the floor, they've been able to do different things. And for Utah, let's talk about them briefly for a second here, Kyle. Um, I think their lack of versatility and scheme was apparent juxtaposed against the Clippers here with their ability to do whatever that they wanted. And part of that is because of the fact that the Jazz, Quinn Snyder did not make those adjustments. Part of it is that they didn't have the personnel to do it either. They didn't have that small ball center option, a Marcus Morris, a Nicholas Batum style player to plug in there instead of have bring favors off the bench or maybe just limiting Gobert's minutes in certain situations. They didn't have that option. And I thought Jonathan Sharks made a really smart point in his article about the Jazz where he talked about the draft pick they made last year with Azabuki, the 27th pick. And he's like, you could have had Jaden McDaniels, who Minnesota got, who was excellent individually on defense this season. For a rookie, he was really, really good. And he showed a lot of offensive promise. And you could have had Desmond Bain. You could have had Xavier Tillman. You could have had these guys that would have allowed you to play smaller. And that maybe that could have helped more in that series against the Clippers. So where do you feel with Utah? Like, what is missing? What do they need to add here? Where are you at with what Chark said as well about the idea of them adding that small ball element that they didn't have in this postseason as well? I think that's the simple answer. The other answer is keep you guys healthy. Their two biggest playmakers, score playmakers, were were hurt, and that that was damning down the stretch. It really hurt the flow of their offense. It played right into the Clippers' hands because if they weren't going to be able to create offense and then you just flip what they're doing on the other, it just snowballed. Yeah, I mean, that was, it's funny, Sharks and I had the same idea on that. I, I didn't realize he had said that about the, but I mean, totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that McDaniels, maybe, maybe McDaniels would have been ready to play in this kind of situation. He might have just been forced to, but I think, uh, who am I kidding? He would have played. The option, the option would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. He would have, at least. I, I love Jane McDaniels. I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Desmond Bain would have been big too. I mean, it's amazing that just even the, imagine, Bain going to 30, man, I'm, I'm just never going to understand that. That's a guy who is, you know, you don't have a ton of guys in every rookie class that are ready to play in playoff series. And like, to me, Tillman and Bain were both ready. And a lot of teams passed on those guys. Um, Utah, I, I think I think Tillman or, or McDaniel specifically were the, were the two guys that could have helped them. If they had made some kind of offseason move to get a, a guy like that, I guess it depends on... Um, how affordable that kind of player would be. But to me, that's the obvious thing. And they just hope that those, if you're going to run it back, I guess what I would ask you is, um, how do you feel about, where do you think the weak spot, if they were to say punt on something they kind of like now? Because to me, my whole trade philosophy is, I need to lean into punting or uh, or punting on something that I kind of like now to get something that I might really like. Do you think that there's a move for them to 
maybe trade somebody that they they think is a productive contributor right now to get what they need? Who do you think is the most likely candidate? That's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, I think you you look at this team like you're not you're not trading Rudy Gobert. You're not trading Donovan Mitchell. You'd love to have Mike Conley back. Um, so who does that leave? You have Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles, Boyan Bogdanovich, Royce O'Neal. Like these are nice players, but none of none of the potential return for them is going to get you a significant amount back. There's no young player that has significant value for your team. You don't necessarily have any high value draft picks besides your own, and those aren't high value because you're gonna you're a good team and you want to be contending, so they're lower in the first round. So for the Jazz here. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Like we talk so much about, you know, the reason why Charks was on the Jaden McDaniels pick there and why you're mentioning Desmond Bain is because wing wing players, good wing players are the hardest to find. Phoenix has a lot of them. Phoenix has Mikel Bridges. They have Cam Johnson. They have Jay Crowder. They have even Tory Craig for that matter, you know, who gets some minutes for you. So they have a lot of players to use there, which is a rarity. The Jazz, Royce O'Neal is a very solid player. He is a solid player, but he is undersized in most wing matchups, stopping other go-to scoring wing players like Kawhi Leonard, like Paul George. Where do you find those guys? Are you able to acquire those players? I'm not sure the answer here. And I think for Utah, the benefit of having Rudy Gobert is that in many matchups, you there's nobody you'd rather have on defense for you. There's nobody you'd rather have in pick and roll situations, but against those small ball lineups like the Clippers did, or if the Warriors get great again and next season they go with Draymond at the five, then you're then you're in trouble if he can't beat you. To me, I think about Utah, and it's almost less. I mean, they do need to make personnel changes. To your point, but it's almost more about the player development. It's Mitchell taking another step forward. It's Rudy Gobert. You're asking a lot out of Mitchell. I mean, he's it, really made a lot know, of leaps. <laughs> I know, but like he's still a young guy. And Rudy Gobert, yeah. it's can we score against Luke Kennard? Can we be a threat inside against a six foot three, six foot four guy? It's not a lot to ask, but if you can do that, then you're able to force the other team, hopefully, to put a big on the floor. And he's unable to do that. He's nowhere close to being able to do that. How, how about you, Kyle? Is there a trade or a signing um, or something that comes to mind about what they should do? I'm going to mention this twice in like four days so Jazz fans don't get mad at me. But I, I really was thinking in that, like, if you're thinking about moving somebody, like, Ingles could potentially have value to another team because of his playmaking across the board uh, and shooting. They probably wouldn't move him. I don't think he because he's been sort of a loyal Utah guy. I'd be surprised if, it, if they did that. You know, they're probably not going to move Boyan. They're probably just going to run it back like we were talking. I think the answer might be the very first thing that I said about it is, you know, you hope that your two big-time score playmakers stay healthy throughout the series and you don't have to go to... I mean, because they almost... They lost by the skin of their teeth. I mean, I know the Clippers made that insane comeback. They almost got there. So, uh, of course, Kawhi was out. There's been a lot of asterisks in this, in this series. It, it, with Gobert, it just kind of... It's an interesting thing where you're you're if you look at every team like an argument, it's like let's uh, just as a metaphor, every team is an argument, and you're trying to think of the thing that is going to be the most you're going to win the most arguments. It's like yeah, but in this like five percent of the time, Gobert isn't effective. Well, it's like you almost kind of have to. I know that like people brag and the, and we argue about Gobert's effectiveness all year, and they're like, look at the his defensive Raptor, he's number one. It's like, well, he's number one against this massive sample where he works, but they keep running into this wall, and it's a tough it's a tough call. It's why he's paid so much. 
it's a tough call that they would have to make. I, I mean, I assume that they're they're going to just stay in pat with the the cards they have and just keep going with it. So. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20 for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. The NBA draft lottery is on Tuesday night. So to preview that, let's go through some of the things that you got to know entering that draft lotto on Tuesday. And let's start with the Houston Rockets, the team with arguably the most at stake on lotto night, Kyle. The Rockets had the worst record in the NBA, but their draft pick is top four protected because of the Westbrook for Paul trade with the OKC Thunder. And Houston has a 14% chance to get number one and a 52.1% chance to land in the top four, which means there's a 47.9% chance chance they lose the pick and the thunder get it and if okc does get it houston would instead receive miami's pick which is number 18 rockets fans don't even want to think about that scenario it gives them nightmares they don't want to have it so kyle they want to think about the prizes at the top of the draft and whether say, you r- sound like uh, the guy from uh, it's always sunny with the board with all the connected the dots and the yarn. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like, oh, this insanely complex <laughs> this scenario that could screw yeah. us. Yeah, this one's actually pretty simple. It's pretty much a 50 50 chance. They keep the pick pretty much. Ultimately, 50, yes. 52 48 <laughs> if we want to round up. But Rockets fans don't want to think of the worst case scenario here. They want to think about keeping that pick and landing one of the top two picks. So whether it's for Rockets fans or any other team that were to win the lottery, who are those top two players, Kyle, that fans need to know about? You always want to kind of separate the draft into tiers and think about what I call context changers. And there are, there's one for sure, to me, context changer in this draft. A lot of people would argue there's two. The first one is Cade Cunningham. You can hear this name a lot. Uh, Cade's like broad, stylistic comp. And, and, you know, this is for people who haven't seen him. I know a lot of people have heard about him. But in today's NBA, he's the type of guy that you could build I think from day one, you could build an offense around him. You can plug in wing players. He's like the type of guy that can, he's big. He's like six foot eight, pretty solidly built, probably about 220, 25 pounds, would you say? Or maybe even a little heavier than that. But he's he has the type of broad shoulders, big frame, could put on a lot of weight. There were questions about him as like a shot maker. He's addressed a lot of those in the past year. Um, the kind of guy that can get into the middle of the floor at the nail, uh, throw skip passes. His scoring is, and he's, the big thing about Cade is he has pace that uh, that really is way ahead of his age. He's way beyond his years and his wisdom on that front. So he's really, really good at uh, manipulating. You're gonna hear you're gonna hear Luca comps for him stylistically. My thing I always tell people: Well, what would you say about the stylistic comp- comparison between Cade and and Luca? Similar. Luca has uh, an even higher level of feel, higher level footwork. 
came in just a better player. But Cade Cunningham is very good. The comp we have for Cade Cunningham in the NBA draft guide is a supersized Shea Gildas Alexander. It's like a bigger version of him, can get to where he wants on the floor and sometimes an unorthodox looking way, but a high basketball IQ, a great feel for the game, the ability to hit his own shot, create for others at a high level. There's, I mean, Kate Cunningham, the level, the, the real question with him is going to be what level does he reach? Because there's no doubt he's going to be a successful NBA player. Like his floor is very high. It's just a matter of what level his ceiling is. And that's why some people might say Evan Mobley, who's more of a versatile center, could be the guy that people should take. Where do you stand on Evan Mobley, Kyle? Evan Mobley, uh, really, really big. Um, he, he's got a, a skill set that is pretty unique to his size. He's a good passer. He has great feel. Um, he's going to be, in my opinion, a pretty high-level positional defensive big in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think with Cade, he's my preference of the two. Um, do you have Cade number one as well? And is there anything with Cade Cunningham that would convince you that Mobley is the number one prospect? Is there any any argument for Mobley over Cade Cunningham? The argument that he could just become a dominant defensive big, I guess, and could become a pop shooter and could become, you know, he's he's got pretty solid feel for his size. For me, no. I mean, I, I just think Cade is going to be a better player. Um, I know people are kind of trying to, that's an obvious corner that's visible there that people are wanting to take. I wouldn't take it. Um, I, I just think that Cade uh, has the potential to be I just think his floor as a number one pick is higher than than we've had in a little bit here. Mm. So I'm I'm pretty confident that Cade's gonna be a good player. Is, is there a team that's a best fit for Cade Cunningham? Well, the thing about Cade is he's similar to Halliburton and that if you could he plugs into so many different he, he also, I didn't say this, was positionally defensively a really, really clever player, really switchable. He can fit with these multiple scoring guard lineups like Sacramento has. Uh he'd be great with Cleveland's guards, he'd be great with OKC. Uh, his unselfishness and his ability to—he's just going to be one of those high, like assisted usage type guys. Like you can, you could put several different types. He's adaptable. I mean, those teams at the top, Houston. Houston has the absence of sort of a of an approach right now that I think that he would be huge for. He'd be great with Minnesota. He'd be great. You could just go on and on down the list. I mean, uh, he'd be interesting in Orlando too. So, um, Kate is really, really flexible, dynamic, adaptable. He fits all over the place. I think the team that may not be the best fit, but the team that needs him the most is Minnesota. And that's because they're another team with significant draft pick protection implications. And that involves the Golden State Warriors. So Minnesota had the sixth worst record in the NBA and the Warriors have the rights to their first round pick because of the D'Angelo Russell trade. And that pick is top three protected, which means there's a 27.6% chance it lands in the top three and Minnesota gets to keep it. That's why it's important for them. And if that happens, they'd instead give their 2022 first to Golden State and that would be unprotected. But in all likelihood, Golden State is going to get to keep, but there's a 9.6% chance it goes number four and a 62.8% chance it lands between six and 10. But Wolves fans as well, just like Rockets fans, they won't, don't want to think about that. They better hope they get to keep this because, you know, time is of the essence here with Cat's new contract. You got D'Lo, Anthony Edwards in year two. You want to get that nice young player in there quickly and Cunningham or Mobley could be franchise changing for them. And, but there's, pretty good consolation prizes in this year's draft too, Kyle. Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga and Jalen Green from the G League Ignite. Suggs, a prospect who can fit anywhere, 6'4", freshman guard, high basketball IQ, smooth style on the floor, very good defensively. He's kind of a, maybe not a franchise changer, but a culture changer with his style of play, his potential leadership as he ages. I think that provide a nice balance. 
How where are you where are you with Suggs versus Green? How would you compare and contrast their styles? I'm a Suggs guy, but Jalen Green is f- more of the scorer. Uh, I think the argument between Suggs and Green could play out huge for 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 the Wolves because if they if a team that is drafting there at three prefers Green to Suggs, that ultimately could play out better. I think that Suggs. Is a, is a little bit more plug and play with what Minnesota is doing right now. Because if you think about Edwards, if you add another guy that is driven by the fact that he is just hungry to score constantly, like Suggs has shown that he can defer, that he can have his defensive role kind of be his main thing uh, and facilitate, attack the rim, share the ball. Uh, if you think about his balance with like Russell and, and, and Ant-Man, um, I feel like Jalen Green, it, they could make it work. It all, but honestly, if Green is there and they take him, it could you know create some expendability on their roster. I personally don't am not hung up on D'Angelo Russell. I know I don't think you're a big D'Angelo Russell guy either. I was going to flip it and ask you: Do you think that Minnesota did the right thing by being like we're going to win as much as possible down the stretch of this season as it pertains to these picks in this situation? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, but like, I mean, we'll see what happens on draft lottery night. Ultimately, to see if that was the right decision or not. We've seen teams with you know non top four odds land in the top three. Um, so there's a strong possibility still that they do. I mean, their odds aren't horrible here. Like, what did I say? They have a 27.6 percent chance it lands in the top three. Not horrible. You know, we'll see what happens. And having an unprotected 2022 wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, but we'll see what happens there. I think between Suggs and Green. I I prefer Suggs here, I think, period, regardless of situation. Are there certain teams in which that you would love the Jalen Green fit and have them have him ranked ahead of Suggs on your personal draft board? Uh team I, I like Suggs there too because he's also a Minnesota kid and I'm sure he would probably enjoy uh I don't know if he's a Wolves fan anyway. I mean, I could see Green. I mean, Detroit could use his scoring. Houston could use his scoring. Um, I could see he'd be interesting in Toronto's system to see what they would do with him. Um, Sacramento, him, that's a lot of spindly kind of light guards that aren't defensively driven. I'm not totally sure, but I don't know if you would just take him anyway. Uh, Cleveland, same kind of deal. Oklahoma City would be interesting. They would, but it's like Oklahoma with, City. With SGA in that backcourt? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean... I've been I've I've told you this. I mean, I've been kind of up and down with Green to the point where I'm a little bit maybe I'm just a little bit afraid of being wrong at this point. <laughs> but he's so talented. Like that's what people should know. He's he can get like NBA jam hot. In some ways I've said he kind of reminds me of like Monk when Monk was coming into college. It was just like this guy is just pure offensive talent. But Green is um Green is a guy who could develop into a star if certain things play out right. And so in the G League, Jalen Green played with Jonathan Kuminga, um, who by most people is ranked fifth. I have him fifth on my board. You, one team you mentioned in there, Kyle, that's interesting to me is Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that Suggs or Green were to make sen- would make sense for them if they were to land three, four, or five. And Kuminga is becoming this love him or hate him prospect where the, there's the skeptics say he's so raw he doesn't have a feel for the game. He's a ball stopper. Does is not a great decision maker on the floor. He's all theoretical potential. I'm not going to take the risk on him. The people who question his potential. But then you have people who say you have this six foot eight guy who's 225 pounds who can move with the ball in his hands, who has shown the ability to create space off the dribble. So what 
if he doesn't have decision-making skills at 18 years old. It's about what he turns into at 22, 23 years old. And I'm very much in the middle here with Kaminga. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the personality aspect. To me, like that is one of the big determining factors here. Like, How hard does he work? Well, how does he approach adversity? Things like that are sometimes what tilts your decision one way or the other, and teams are figuring that, uh, that out as well. With Kaminga, is there any chance he is the X factor of this draft where a team falls in love with that potential, the idea of what he could be. And he does crack that top three because we talked about this Kyle, like with Phoenix, with the Clippers wings are so important and green and Suggs are guards, smaller guards. Kuminga is big and versatile and he can handle the rock. Do you see any potential for that? Or does he have certain qualities that will hold him back from breaching the top three, regardless of what happens on lotto night? Yeah, for me, the idea when we get into these conversations where we start using phrases like the idea of a player, he's the idea of this happening. If certain things don't fall in place in order, like let's say a guy is, I feel I feel a lot more comfortable with a guy's developing decision making and playmaking skills if that is piggybacking off of a foundation that's kind of that I'm confident is already going to be there. Um, is he going to become a d- great decision maker as as a playmaker? I I don't know. I don't know that I'm confident enough about him as a scorer at the next level to say I'm willing to bet on this at this spot. Um, definitely not before. Not in the top three. I I personally, and I've said this. I I think I like Scotty Barnes better than I like Jonathan Kaminga. Like, why is that? Why is that? Because I'm pretty certain i feel more confident about scotty barnes's defensive identity his interest in his identity as a player he's i've watched him for a long time and it's like if you give me a six foot eight six foot nine guy who is willing and interested in guarding five positions which i think that he can do he played point of attack at florida state i know we love the florida state guys um he led the he led the. I've said this stat fifty thousand times, but he led the nation <laughs> in uh, in spot up assist off the roll. I'm pretty sure it was according to Synergy. So he's a guy when you can play him as a role man. He can finish. Um, he's really athletic. I think his body could go in a number of directions in terms of he's just got a good frame. Um, and he's he likes to pass the ball. He likes to hit to skip pass and short roll passes. You put that guy on the floor, he could play some five, in my opinion. I, I like him a lot. I'm more confident in his personality as a player than I am in Kaminga. I could live to regret that. Put it on Twitter, you know, string me up and make a fool of me. But I really think I like Barnes and I have. Hey, you have to trust your gut. And he's a high basketball IQ player. He's a, yeah. he's a completely selfless player. And, and I think that's a quality where whether, whether he achieves stardom or becomes a high-level role player, that is a quality that you want in somebody who's on a championship contender. And, you know, we're talking about the idea of Minnesota getting to keep that pick. The odds are is Golden State will get to retain the pick, whether and, and it'll fall in the 6-10 to 10 range. Regardless of Golden State, there's other teams that are in that range. Cleveland has the fifth best odds, then Golden State, then Toronto, then Orlando, Sacramento, New Orleans, Charlotte, San Antonio, Indiana, and then Golden State down to 14. In that mid to late lottery range, Kyle, you mentioned Scotty Barnes already. Who's another prospect that could have steel potential in that mid-lotto range? In the mid-lotto range, I mean, it, it really depends on who's picking there. There are some guys that I like a lot. Um, I was thinking about guys who are like plug-and-play, ready to play playoff basketball quickly. Um, like, I, I think Chris Duarte is going to be ready to play pretty quickly. Ooh, uh, good next first year. name to throw out there. Yeah. I like uh, it. Knockdown shooter. Knockdown shooter, two-way player. I mean, I just think he's going to be somebody that's just going to be able to play. Uh, I think... 
Usman Garuba could play some five defensively. It depends. It depends on a lot of things, but I definitely think so. Um, Jaden Springer is a defensively versatile player that I think is going to be ready to go pretty quickly. Uh, and then there's just sort of a peppering of uh, players that, I mean, Davion Mitchell is another one, but I don't even know that he'll last there. If you're talking about like seven to 14 range, um, Josh Giddy could give you, Keon I'm not a Johnson. Keon Johnson. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, he'll probably go. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes five, six, seven range. It serve, nah. And I mean, I, I think he'll go around there too. I'd be surprised if he slipped any further, but that's still mid lottery though. What is the appeal of a Keon Johnson? Um, really t- built like a truck. I mean, he can shoot the ball. He's a, he's a physical finisher. Um, has seemed willing and growing as a playmaker and a passer. Um, he sort of crept onto the radar in the past year. He was one of those guys, like it was like a year ago, it was kind of hip to pick him, but once he played some college basketball, um, his strengths were pretty apparent, in my opinion. Excellent um, athlete. And oh, yeah. Cre- can create off the dribble a little bit, show some flashes, needs to get better with his handle. Inconsistent right now as a shooter, but the flashes of what he could be, changing speeds, how quick he is, how much he can leap, he explodes to the rim. I mean, there's a heck of a lot of appeal there for him. One of those teams that's going to have a lot of shots in the draft uh, is the Oklahoma City Thunder. They have the fourth best odds, the 16th pick, 18th pick, 35th, 36th, and 55th pick in the draft. They got the 16th pick in a recent trade involving the Boston Celtics. They acquired Kemba Walker and sent back uh, Moses and Al Horford to get the 16th pick in Kemba. OKC on draft night, man. We talked earlier about how there's a chance that Houston pick turns into an OKC pick. There's a chance their own pick with the fourth best odds ends up number one. Or if it isn't, they have the ability to move around a little bit with four, 16, and 18. What what does OKC need moving forward here? Should they be thinking about staying within this draft? Should they be thinking for a player trade? for a guy that might become available because you look at this OKC team, they were not bad when Gildas Alexander was healthy. They were an average team on the play in tournament bubble. So they have all these picks coming in in the years to come. If you're Sam Presti here, Kyle, what are you thinking about entering the draft and building this thing out moving forward with all the draft picks that you now have? I guess it depends on where that first one lands, because if I, if I land a big fish with that first pick, Cunningham or Mobley, right? Yeah, if it yeah. could, yeah. I mean, I could just be like, okay, we're good. We can make, and and a lot of it's situational, like you said. I mean, that's that's the way it flies every single year. Maybe on draft night, they can cluster those picks together with a team that's close that has an asset that they want. I mean, OKC has. Would you agree or disagree on this? I mean, how many how many things are I always use this expression nailed down for them? I mean, we know Shea. I'm, I'm pretty sure Shea's nailed down for them. Yeah. I assume they're going to want to keep Poku. Um, I mean, what Why do you, wouldn't you want to keep poker? Everybody should I mean, want poker. Exactly. He's a <laughs> franchise player, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, I think it, that's... Oh, go ahead. It might be just SGA, if we're being totally real here. It might just be him. I mean, you're going to trade Poku if it's a situation to become a contender right away. You're going you're gonna to trade Dort if that's what it takes. Uh, I Tyler mean, Parker's so- coming after you now. Yeah, for for both of them. <laughs> the thing is with OKC, some of these guys, like a Dort, they might have more value to another team with championship hopes before Oklahoma City is ready to be a championship contender because so many of OKC's players on their roster 
like Dort, a defensive stopper who's shown improvements as a spot-up three-point shooter, he would fit anywhere. He fits the description of what we're talking about. So with Oklahoma City, you'd love to keep him around with his youth at only 22 years old, and maybe you will. You very well might. But there might come a point when it comes to his restricted free agency that another team is like, we need this guy now, and we'll give you a whole bunch to make it happen. So I I really think it's just SGA. Um, But it also depends on how quickly they get good. They very well could be good as soon as next season, which is why I'm so intrigued by the amount of ammo that they have. If they if they wanted to make an all-in trade for any player that becomes available, they could make the most to offer. The quest- only question for Sam Presti in that front office is, when is the moment to do it? And I think what you said earlier, Kyle, about it depends on what happens with that top pick. If they land one or two, then you draft Cunningham or Mobley. Mobley would be fantastic with Gilgis oh, yeah. Alexander. That would be so fun to As watch. As is, he would be great. Like you could just plug Mobley on that team, and it would it would it would be good for sure. It'd be fantastic to watch that. This team could go any old direction that they want to. Well, Kyle, the NBA draft lottery is on Tuesday night. Looking forward to that. A lot of teams going to be bringing their lucky charms, going to be fingers crossed, hoping to get the number one or number two pick for Cade Cunningham or Evan Mobley. Good luck to all the teams. Man, I love the NBA draft lottery. I love the NBA draft. <laughs> I just love everything surrounding it. I always have. When I was in sixth grade, I used to have this notebook and I would write out every pick and where they went to college and my thoughts on them, things like that. But I was going to say, too, and another detail that I should confess to everybody, and I think this is appropriate because it's Father's Day. <laughs> so it's like fourth quarter. I've sat through you know, that whole game. I'm taking notes diligently, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Which game was this? This is Bucks Nets. Bucks so Nets. It's, okay. it's Saturday night. This was your Father's Day because you said you celebrated on Saturday instead of Sunday. Yeah. Had a yeah. huge day just carousing, just you know, scooting around Louisville. So <laughs> I was sitting there, nine minutes left, and I was like, I'm I'm gonna fall asleep. And and, and so I was like, okay, I'm gonna close my eyes for five minutes and I'm gonna wake up and, and watch the end of this game. Yeah, I fell asleep for God knows how long. So I woke up and they were interviewing Chris Middleton and they were like, well, congrats, you're going to the Eastern Conference Finals. <laughs> uh, so I totally ripped Van Winkle at the end of that game and had to watch it this morning. But uh, yeah, I missed it live. <laughs> so I thought that was appropriate on Father's Day that I fell asleep during game seven, the closing minutes. Uh, in true dad fashion. I haven't hit that point yet. I'm also not a dad, but I haven't hit the point yet where I fall asleep in front of the TV. But one thing, I don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. So you, you think you're saying that that's why you have such incredible uh, could, powers of be. staying awake? In fact, I'm all natural. Kevin O'Natural, everybody. There we go. <laughs> Kyle, happy Father's Day, man. Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and happy Father's Day to all the dads listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Ringer NBA show. And thank you to Steve Allman for producing. Yes, yeah, Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve. Follow the Ringer NBA show on Spotify. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And please be sure to tell a friend about the show if you like it. Thank you again. And I hope you have a fun day. See ya.